Hello everyone, I'm Trevor Cully, host of the History of Persia. The ancient Persian empires interacted with Africa more often than you might think. The Achaemenid Persians, best known for not conquering Greece, controlled Libya, the westernmost point in their empire, and Lower Nubia as the southernmost point. Almost 1,000 years later, the Sassanid Persians fought a protracted war against the Aksumite kingdom of Ethiopia, but the stories of ancient Persia extend far beyond Africa, or even the Greek wars they are known for. The first Persian empire brought an end to Pharaonic Egypt and ancient Babylon. The last Persian empire nearly brought an end to the Eastern Roman Empire and was ultimately subject to more than half of the Arab conquests of the 7th century. If the stories of ancient Persia interest you, come check out the History of Persia podcast. You can find me online at historyofpersiapodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of Africa. I'm your host, Andy. Last week, the indigenous Ona culture of the Northern Highlands joined the Sabaean Confederacy of Southern Arabia. This period saw a mixing of culture, with aspects of Southern Arabian culture having a strong influence on the people of the Northern Ethiopian Highlands, with the Ona people adopting the Southern Arabian methods of writing, craftsmanship, and religion. However, cracks are beginning to form in the Sabaean Confederacy, as its constituent cities begin to catch up to the capital in terms of wealth and influence. Now, let's begin. Episode 13, Out with Saba, In with Damat. One of the simultaneous benefits and drawbacks of a decentralized government is just how little the ruler of the state matters. In a centralized system, the untimely death of a single ruler can upend an entire government. Think about all the times we saw the centralized government of Egypt go belly up after a king died without an heir in season 1. When there's no central authority in a system designed around that authority, the government becomes paralyzed, unable to do anything, really. In a decentralized system, though, the death of a ruler rarely means anything much at all. Most of the real power of day-to-day governance lies with local leaders, not with the main king. If a king dies in a decentralized state, life continues on as normal construction projects keep getting built, taxes keep getting collected, trade continues to be facilitated, and the system just keeps running like clockwork. An especially incompetent, malevolent, or otherwise bad leader can be serious trouble in a centralized system, using the large sums of power and resources at their disposal on fruitless projects or destructive desires. But in a decentralized system, an especially terrible ruler doesn't really matter that much. They don't have as many resources at their disposal to misuse, so their rule isn't as potentially destructive as in a centralized state. Daily life and governments goes on largely unaffected by the presence of an incompetent king. The ultimate unimportance of the ruler is the biggest advantage of the decentralized system, but can also be its biggest peril. After all, if these rulers are so irrelevant to daily governance, then what's the point of their existence at all? Sure, they can indirectly unite disparate local governments into a more powerful collective state, but what happens when that state outlives its usefulness to local rulers? In 700 BC, the Southern Red Sea region was dominated by the Saba Confederacy, a collection of mostly independent city-states that pledged allegiance to the capital city of Marib. While the cities of Saba were once mere agrarian townships that were completely dependent economically on Marib, The growth of these towns into major cities had led to increased autonomy. The same was true of the city-states in East Africa. The largest city in the region, Koheto, was already a thriving independent city-state when it joined the Sabaean Confederacy, and this had only grown more true over time. However, to the south lay the city that would ultimately surpass all others in the Ethiopian highlands. 
Yeha was a city that lay on the fringes of the Sabaean Confederacy. It was technically a member of the Sabaean state, and there is some strong evidence of at least some Sabaean cultural influence in the region. The city, for example, had a grand temple built on the Southern Arabian style, dedicated to the Southern Arabian moon god Al-Makkah, and wrote its records in the Southern Arabian script. But the city also managed to maintain more of its East African heritage than the coastal city-states to its north. Yeha's pottery was made in the pre-Sabaean style, and many of its buildings with a secular purpose reflect distinctly East African architectural styles. The city had managed to accrue a small area of influence, ruling over a few neighboring villages. This small kingdom was known as the Kingdom of Damat. Damat, in the Sabaic language, means pillars, and the name most likely makes reference to the pillars of the Grand Temple of Al-Makkah in Yeha. Damat was the first true kingdom to appear in the historical record of Ethiopia, but for now it only consists of the capital city of Yeha and a few surrounding agrarian villages. The kingdom was a constituent kingdom of the Sabaean Confederacy, one of the kings that was subservient to the Mukarib of Saba. However, all of that was about to change. By the end of the 700s BC, Saba's economy had began to gradually decline. As other southern Arabian cities grew to challenge Marib in influence, some of the largest decided that paying taxes to the city's Mukarib was, well, optional, and opted not to do it. Some decided that undercutting the incense prices of Saba's monopoly by selling at a cheaper price would produce more short-term profits, and some, like Marib's biggest rival city, Hajar Yahir, decided to do both. While this exporting of incense at a cheaper price did lead to short-term profits, it also devalued the price of incense in the international market, and undermined Saba's export-driven economy. The coastal cities of East Africa, like Kohaito, began to feel the effects of this decline. They, just like the cities of southern Arabia, built their economy around the exporting of frankincense, and the decline in the price of frankincense was devastating to the economy of Kohaito and the other Ona states. Yeha, though, was largely unaffected by this decline, and was, in fact, experiencing an economic boom. Incense exporting was a relatively small part of Yeha's economy, and one of the city's largest exports, ivory, was booming in price. Elephants had recently gone extinct in the Middle East, and were dwindling in population across coastal East Africa. Yeha reaped the economic benefits of trafficking in this increasingly rare, and thus increasingly expensive, resource. Their dominance in the booming trade of ivory made Yeha the most prominent city-state in the Ona region, and its kingdom of Damat began to spread its economic reach over the rest of the Ona region. The region had not yet adopted copper or bronze tools, and many cities were still using stone tools to do most of their tasks. However, for the last couple hundred years, Damat had broken the traditional hierarchy of metallurgy, and jumped straight from the use of stone tools into iron smelting likely based on an earlier ironworking practice that predated the arrival of Sabaeans in the region, with no intermediary bronze or copper period. This, to say the least, is unusual. Demont was not the first kingdom in the world to adopt the widespread use of iron, as the metal had grown in its usage throughout the Middle East around 300 years before it spread in the Ethiopian highlands. But the spread of iron in the Ethiopian highlands prior to the adaptations of bronze making is interesting albeit not uncommon in sub-Saharan Africa. Yeha quickly became one of the largest centers of iron working within the Ethiopian highlands, making other East African cities dependent on them for the crucial metal. Between its dominance of the crucial ivory and iron trades, Yeha was now the most dominant and important city in the Ethiopian highlands.
While Yeha's influence was waxing, Marib's influence was waning. By the 690s BC, the pretense of Sabaean lordship over its neighboring city-states had evaporated altogether. The various constituent cities of the Confederacy had long been de facto independent anyways, but it was official now. The city of Hajar Yahir, long a rebellious subject, proclaimed itself to be the capital of the new independent kingdom of Ausan. The northern city of Haram proclaimed the independent kingdom of Ma'in, and the city of Timna forsook the Mukarib and declared an independent kingdom of Kataban in the western valleys. These cities renounced their worship of the Sabaean god al makkah choosing instead to worship an alternative moon god, Am, meaning uncle in the Kataban language. Remember, the Mukarib of Saba held very little earthly power, and most of his authority came from his spiritual position as the voice and descendant of al makkah Renouncing the worship of this god was a direct proclamation that these cities no longer respected the rule of the Mukarib. With this final insult, the independence of these kings could no longer be respected, and the confederacy of Saba was broken. The current Mukarib of Saba, a man named Karib al-Watar, was not willing to let these rebellious cities secede unpunished, and ordered the conscription of an army from his remaining local territories. Throughout his reign, Wattar mounted numerous campaigns to recover these rebellious kingdoms. His first campaign would come against Ausan. Ausan was an influential region in terms of wealth, but never hosted a large enough population to raise a true army. Saba's army looted and sacked its way through the villages of Ausan uncontested, flattening villages like grass under a mower. Upon reaching the kingdom's capital of Hajar Yahir, the city was systematically destroyed brick by brick and most of its populace slaughtered or scattered. With his greatest rival now destroyed, Wattar turned to the kingdom of Ma'in. Ma'in proved to be a more challenging opponent for Wattar's army. When the capital city of Haram forsook its alliance to Saba, several other surrounding cities had decided to join this rebellion, confederating with Ma'in. In fact, the rulers of Ma'in styled themselves as sort of a new Saba, with their rulers claiming the title of Mukarib, and claiming to be the descendants of their god, Am. Wittar had to wage bloody and prolonged sieges in each of these rebel cities, grinding through a three-year-long siege in the city of Nishan before slogging through yet another siege of the city of Nishak, this one right outside the gates of the capital, Haram. These cities received a similarly harsh treatment to Hajar Yahir, and, recognizing their imminent defeat and in an attempt to save their city from being sacked, the Mukaribs of Ma'in submitted once more to Saba, followed shortly by their ally, Kataban. After years of gruesome warfare, Karib al-Wattar had finally reasserted the authority of the Mukarib over the rest of southern Arabia. With this victory, Karib al-Wattar was now the undisputed ruler of Saba. The local rulers who had once held so much power within the confederacy had overplayed their hand and been vanquished, and pretty much all the power of the state was now held in Wattar's hands. In previous years, the ruler of Saba went by the title of Mukarib, or Holy Federator. Below him were the many local kings who went by the title of Malik. But now that those other kings had either been vanquished or forced to submit, Karib al-Wattar figured that the confederation was an outdated system. He abolished the title of Mukarib, and instead declared himself the Malik, the only Malik, of Saba. The pretense of local autonomy no longer existed and the kingdom of Saba was now a true, centralized monarchy. Karib al-Wattar's campaigns to reunite Saba were undeniably effective, and the centralizing reforms that followed were crucial for Saba's continued survival. 
for these reasons, he's generally regarded as one of, if not the most effective ruler in Saba's history. But while Wattar was focused on restoring the authority of Saba over the rest of southern Arabia, his authority was rapidly slipping away in Saba's African territories. Given how thoroughly the power of the Mukaribs had imploded in Saba's backyard, it is fair to assume that Sabaean authority over their subjects in East Africa, always weak, was now non-existent. During this era of conflict in Saba, the ruler of Damat was a man named Warren Hiwat, or something like that. You see, because the Sabaean writing system didn't contain vowels at this time, we can only actually guess at how the names of Damat's rulers were pronounced. Anyways, Warren Hiwat went by the title of Malik of Damat, and ruled roughly around the same time as Karib al-Wattar. And that's his entire biography. Yes, this important ruler of the first independent state in Ethiopian history, whose reign can be verified with historical evidence, can have his biography summed up in one sentence. And the same is pretty much true for every other one of Demott's recorded rulers. This is incredibly unfortunate, as the origins, exploits, belief, and temperament of these rulers cannot be stated with any level of confidence. Regardless, what little evidence we have about the lives of these men can still lead us to some really interesting conclusions about what was happening in the Ethiopian highlands during this time. The titles that these rulers went by can serve as a clue to what the government of Damat looked like during their rule. Warren Hiwat went by the title of Malik. As we discussed earlier, this title implies that he considered himself just another local kingdom within the Sabaean Confederacy. Based on this, we can assume that Warren Hiwat's reign did not extend far beyond the city walls of Yeha. The continuing usage of Arabian titles for rulership also shows that, while the peasant and working classes mostly maintained their indigenous heritage, the royalty and nobility of even a frontier city like Yeha maintained a court culture influenced by Arab customs. This might also indicate that, despite the chaos unfolding in southern Arabia, the rulers of Damat still maintained a degree of loyalty to their Sabaean sovereign. While Saba's authority to actually enforce its will on these East African cities was long gone, and had barely even existed in the first place, local rulers probably still respected the suzerainty of the Mukarib of Saba, at least in an official sense. This lines up with another piece of evidence for this claim, the continuation of the worship of the Sabaean moon god Al-Makkah. Remember, the name of Al-Makkah was synonymous with the authority of the Mukarib, and nearly the entirety of the Mukarib's authority was drawn from their divine status. It's not a coincidence that every Arabian city that rebelled replaced the worship of Al-Makkah with that of another god, to undermine the legitimacy of the Mukarib. Therefore, the fact that there was never any sort of movement away from the worship of Al-Makkah in East Africa indicates that the region never engaged in an outright rebellion against Saba. However, the official recognition of Sabaean rule would finally come to an end with the elevation of Damat's next ruler, a man named Radom, maybe. Again, the records are written in a language with no vowels, so it's spelled R-D-M, so I'm going to arbitrarily pronounce it as Radom. Anyways, Radom was likely the son of Warren Hiwat, but ruled very differently from his father. He instead adopted the title of Mukarib which is a very big deal for a few reasons. It indicates that he no longer considered himself just another local ruler within the Sabaean Confederacy, but was instead the head of his own federation of multiple autonomous city-states. We'll be back after a quick break. 
How are University of Notre Dame faculty and students working to be a force for good in the world? Listen to Notre Dame Stories to find out. Through expert interviews and captivating stories, listeners gain an inside perspective on the global and domestic challenges the university is working to solve. Subscribe to Notre Dame Stories wherever you get your podcasts. It also shows that the preconception of Sabaean sovereignty over Demot had completely disappeared, as the Federator was now based in Yeha, not Marib. So, what happened? What could have changed within the reign of these two rulers to transform Demot from a small city-state still loyal to Saba into an independent capital of a multi-city federation? Well, I believe the answer lies in Karib al-Watar's decision to proclaim himself as the sole Malik of Saba. You see, while the decision to make himself sole ruler was affected in quashing potential future rivals in southern Arabia, it was a problematic decision for his relationship with the city-states of Ethiopia. You see, while the entirety of southern Arabia was forced at the point of a sword to accept Watar's new status as sole king, this was not the case in East Africa. Declaring yourself to be the sole king of your state was obviously a massive threat to the remaining kings of East Africa. I mean, if this guy is going to be the only Malik of Saba, then what's going to happen to the Malik of Kohaito, or the Malik of Yeha? So, by 690 BC, as the Sabaean Mukarib, oops, I mean Malik, had now shown that he had no intention of respecting the independence of his subjects, the local kings of East Africa left the Sabaean fold. But, the problem is that this confederacy with Saba had existed in the past for a good reason. Individually, the city-states of East Africa are pretty weak both economically and militarily. They don't command enough power in international trade to control the price of their main export, frankincense. And they don't have the militaries to defend themselves from the Cushitic peoples or the Nubians. Oh yeah, I probably should have mentioned what the Nubians have been doing this whole time. Nubia was just coming off from a fall from the peak of its power. To make a likely future season short, a dynasty of Nubian kings from the city of Napata had conquered all of Egypt in 744 BC only to be defeated in a series of wars by the Assyrian Empire and lose all of their Egyptian holdings in 656. As these defeats were occurring, the concept of the Nubians invading the Ethiopian highlands to recoup their losses was frighteningly realistic. So, instead of leaving themselves open to a military invasion, these states formed a new federation, and as the ruler of the wealthiest and most powerful city in the region, Radom was able to insert himself into the role of Mukarib. While I often see sources refer to Demot as a kingdom, this, along with some later developments, indicates to me that federation would likely be a better term for this state, as the city-states of this region essentially maintained their independence under the overarching rule of the Mukarib from Demot. This is the system of government that these cities had grown used to under the rule of Saba, so it makes sense to me that it would continue in this way. You might expect that, by choosing to leave the Sabaean fold, Demot would have spoiled their relationship with their former overlord. Judging by how harshly he had responded to the secession of his other subjects, you might have expected Karib al-Watar to mount some kind of invasion of the Ethiopian highlands to reclaim his territory and return his domain to its greatest geographic extent. However, this invasion never came. Karib al-Watar likely viewed the region as valuable, 
but more trouble than it was worth. He had already exhausted many of his military resources retaking his possessions in Yemen, so why spend more resources mounting an amphibious invasion to reclaim the Ethiopian highlands? In fact, he might have even been relieved that, despite leaving the Sabaean state, these city-states continued their worship of al-Makkah, and had supported him during early stages of his wars. Damat and Saba maintained an incredibly close alliance throughout the following years, and immigration between the two states remained commonplace. Unfortunately, little is known about the period of Damat following its full independence from Saba. Interestingly though, this period is a likely candidate as the inspiration of the story of the Kebra Nagas. This story, one of my personal favorite works of Abrahamic literature, recounts the famous love affair between the Ethiopian queen Makeda, more commonly known as the Queen of Sheba, and the Hebrew king Solomon, and how their son came to be the progenitor of future generations of Ethiopian loyalty. While this story is certainly fascinating, it is, unfortunately, almost certainly a work of mythology. The story was written around 1314 AD, more than 2,000 years after the story is purported to have taken place. Some elements of the story detail events that should have definitely left behind some physical evidence, but for which none exists, and some elements of the story are pretty clearly political propaganda pieces for the powers of the time. But I'm not willing to entirely write off the historicity of this work either. Much like the Arthurian legend, while parts of the work are almost certainly fictional, it's likely that the story is very roughly based on some kind of fact, most likely being based on a pre-Christian story that was later modified to fit a biblical worldview. Makeda is most likely a corruption of the Nubian term Kadaki, a title belonging to the sister of the king that wasn't widely used in Ethiopia until the 7th century. So, if a historical queen of Sheba existed, she was most likely not really the queen of Damat, but more likely the sister of the king of Damat. With this in mind, the story now seems to make a lot more sense. Sisters and daughters of kings are commonly used by the king to secure diplomatic marriages with allied states, so perhaps the story of the Queen of Sheba was not that of passionate lovers, but of a calculated diplomatic move. Assuming that this story occurred in the 7th century, and that the Kebernegast correctly identifies Judah as the destination of her journey, that would make the Hebrew king Josiah, not Solomon, the most likely candidate as the male figure in the Kebernegast. Besides the legendary history of the Kebernegast, an understanding of the Confederacy of Damat remains somewhat enigmatic. In the year 650, a man named Laman was declared the Mukarib of Damat, and then there is historical silence. Now, pretty much every historian on the matter is pretty strongly convinced that there exists plenty of archaeological evidence of what was going on at the time, but that the politically unstable nature of the region of northern Ethiopia and Eritrea today has made further excavation difficult. What little we do know points to a slow decline in the power of the Mukaribs occurring throughout the 500s BC. As Damat renewed its alliance with Saba, and as Saba recovered from its bloody civil war, a global resurgence of the incense trade followed. Remember, Yeha became the dominant city in East Africa specifically because it didn't rely on the incense trade, and now that this trade was resurging, Yeha's influence was waning. The cities closer to the coast saw a major economic boom, and once more began to surpass the inland city of Yeha in terms of economic importance. One of these cities, Adulis, eventually came to outstrip the others in terms of importance and became a global center of the incense trade during this period. By the 400s BC, 
the Mukaribs of Damat were facing the same problems once faced by the Sabaeans, with their cities becoming increasingly independent. However, in Saba, the increasingly independent cities had pushed their luck a little too far by refusing to observe the worship of Al-Makkah, and the cities of Damat were a lot more subtle. Kohaito and Adulis continued to uphold the religious rule of the Mukarib, and instead chose only to undermine his earthly power to collect taxes. Yeha was steadily losing influence, but it was never given a justification to force its subjects back to heel. By 300 BC, Yeha had lost all of its economic significance to the incense-exporting cities of the coast, and the Confederation of Damat finally faded into obscurity. With the Confederation of Damat gone, in its wake were a collection of several dozen squabbling city-states. The great trade cities of Kohaito and Adulis were the largest urban centers in the region, and the city of Yeha, despite its economic decline, remained an important religious center. However, like in the past, it would not be these great cities that would shape Ethiopia's future, but rather an unassuming small settlement on the outskirts of the region. This small agricultural town, with a population likely no larger than 500, would soon grow to become the largest and most influential city not only in the Ethiopian highlands, but in the entire Red Sea region. It would elevate itself from agrarian hamlet to the capital of one of the four most powerful civilizations of its time. Join us next week as we learn about the humble origins of the great empire of Aksum. Thank you for listening to the History of Africa podcast. If you like the show and the free education we provide, then I'd encourage you to support the show. This can be done by a monetary donation to our Patreon, which can be found on our website, historyofafricapodcast.blogspot.com. By giving the show a review on iTunes, or by sharing the podcast to anyone who you think might be interested.